stuff that would go on the podcast. And now, oh, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, hi, by the Quidditch Room, Metal 6, John Strand, Gary K. Wolf, already been talking. Hello, Gary. Oh, okay. Uh, we're, we're, we're continuing the conversation we began before we started recording. Is that correct? Sort of, because it seems to me like it's exactly what we should be talking about. We've been talking about, well, first of all, we both happen to be reading the same book at the same time, which is a vanishingly rare thing. True. It's a book coming out in October called The Hood by Levi Tidhar, which is the second of his Antimatter of Britain books, following on from By Force Alone, though it's almost completely standalone from that title. There, there is a link or two in the background you may or may not have seen yet. Probably um, not. I've, I've only begun it. We should, we should both be honest that neither of us have finished it at this point. Oh, Lord, no, I'm a third of the way through, and you're what, about 20% through? Maybe 15, 20%. Which yeah, is yeah. one of the things, one of the things, by the way, that I have to complain about, uh, what, have I, I don't, what am I reading on iBooks or NetGalley or something? Anyway, I have no idea what page I'm on because I'm on 15%. I'm in yes. location 4321. What does that even mean? Let, welcome to the 21st century. It's a pandemic. Just roll with it. It's all. Okay, let, me, let, let me complain. Let me, well, one more complaint about this. See if this ever happens to you, because I have no idea. I don't. I've not made made any settings on iBooks. But I'll be reading a book, and I'll be three pages in, and I'll get a pop up note saying, "Congratulations, you've reached your reading goal for the day." My reading goal for the day is not three pages. Who has a reading goal like that? Do they set that as a default? Do they assume that American readers can't get past three pages before they have to go to sleep? Maybe they scale you down okay. as you get older. They don't want, you want to give you nap time or something. Maybe that's it. You know, you should feel good that you've made it for three pages because you could die by page 50. <laughs> that's true. But we were just talking about our enthusiasm and puzzlement with, with, the, with the work of Levi Tidhar, who we spoke to the other week about his world's mm -hmm. best SF, and who we promised to talk to about this very book, in fact, when we're finished reading it and all that. And I'm sure yeah. I hope we will. Um, it's been such an interesting thing, and it's different from By Force Alone. It's this strange mix of pop culture, current language, uh, broken up. Uh, I mean, I think the term I used earlier was bricolage of of term, of concept, of story, trying to bring it into, into it. And I really think, um, unlike the previous books, which was strongly about Arthur, as I was saying to you, this one is about about Nottingham, about Sherwood Forest. This, I mean, mm -hmm. this is about hoods in hoods in the hood. Yeah, and it's graphic and it's violent and dark at the beginning, and it's funny at times, and it's quite right now. It's, it's I mean, I'll be I'll, look. I struggled at the, the very beginning. I mean, I've been going through a phase of where I don't read books all the way through. Or in fact, I just mm. finished reading Shelley Parker Chan's "She Who Became the Sun." Right. Uh huh. Now I got a, a an ARC, a digital ARC of that months and months and months ago, and every time I hit the first page and I put it down. The opening description and the opening page, I just, I just hated it. Thought it was terrible. Huh. Thought it was badly written. Uh, whether or not it was doesn't matter. I bounced off it, uh, and so I just was like, "Oh, that opening page is terrible. I'm not going to keep reading it." Went back, actually read it all the way through, and it is a good book. I think it's a book that's worth reading. I think it's one that a lot of people will get a lot out of. And I think general readers as well as readers who are specifically affected by it, it's a book. You know what it's about? I don't. I don't know anything about it. I know the title. I've seen it listed. That's it. Probably the thumbnail sketch would be this. Uh, in the vein, a little bit of Guy Gavriel K. Okay? It is a very mm. smart, well done historical fantasy. It takes as its root real events in uh, Mongol China at the mm. time of the Hongwu Emperor. It, uh, except 
where the the, the uh, person who became the Hongwu Emperor was a desperately poor man who went through various things. This is a desperately poor young woman who starts off. Uh, you know, there's a you know we see the grinding poverty of her family, the absolute lack of value assigned to women in that culture at that time or in that place, and then there's a moment where they see a fortune teller and they say that her brother is going to have a great future and she will have nothing at all. And the brother dies like within mm -hmm. a week. And she decides the only way for her to have a future is to become him. She will live his destiny by being him. She's like a, at that stage, an 11 year old girl. Yeah. And she, she ends up going into a monastery as the emperor did going on into the military and so on through the story. Uh, and living mostly as a man, though well aware that she is always a female at that same time. So all kinds of interesting gender things. It sounds and very, it's, it's, it sounds spookily like Mulan, the movie. Much smarter, much smarter than Mulan. Well, of course it's, it is. It's not a cartoon. The, 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 the counteracting character, because if you will, there's the two sides. There's her and the rebel, the, the rebellion she becomes part of. Then there's this this general who's with the uh, the Mongols. Uh-huh. And he's actually Chinese. And I mean, I've simplified that and got the terms wrong, but basically Chinese. And his family were all slaughtered by the Mongols for whatever. And he was, as a child, guilt, he was uh, made into a eunuch. Uh -huh. So you have this male character with damaged gender in this situation where he's serving the people who damaged him, who all think he loves them. And then this woman being a man, being whatever, as the story goes on. Yeah. And apart from, I will say, to my reading, there's a section in the book where that kind of like flags a little, uh, mm -hmm. where the plot gets a little heavy for me as a reader. But the rest of it is, is, is really very, very well done. I'll be curious to see the second book in the set. And I know that, I mean, I probably don't react as passionately to gender issues as a lot of uh, readers do or some readers do, but I still found it really quite compelling, a strong, a strong debut. That's excellent. I look forward to seeing it. And it, it raises a question which I was thinking about um, related to this, because uh, you, you, you've, we've, we've talked about Guy Gabriel Kay, we've talked about Lavi Tidda, we've talked about a lot of people uh, in, in, who use historical templates for writing fantasy. And that's become such a, I mean, certainly it has to do with Arthurian uh, legends, it has to do with the, the Robin Hood legend, I guess, in the case of the Hood. Um, it has to do with Tolkien's influence on everybody. But the book I've been reading, partly because we hope to talk to her in a couple of weeks, and I should have read it long before now, is Arcady Martin's A Memory Called Empire. Now, this is a book written by a professional academic historian, I think a Byzantine historian, which mm -hmm. is a great phrase because it could refer either to her or to what she studies. <laughs> but, uh, I, I don't know whether she's, we'll find out whether she's Byzantine, but the fact I'll, I'll is... Her. I don't think she is. I think she's lovely. Okay. Excellent. This is a very intelligent book, which makes very intelligent use of history in a science fiction space opera context. Um, and this is something which made me think, okay, how did, when and how did fantasy take over historical fiction instead of science fiction? I mean, science fiction used to be full of it. I mean, um, full of it, well, in more ways than one, I guess. But the reason I've been thinking about this, another reason is we've been seeing ads and promotional stuff for the I guess TV miniseries of Asimov's Foundation. Asimov's Ain't Foundation. No miniseries, baby. You, eighty hours. Eighty hours. They plan eighty hours if it's successful. So I don't know miniseries. Okay, they they're, they're thinking the foundation is going to be the Expanse, I think, or something along those. Which it could be. I mean, basically, let's let's face it. Uh, it would 
probably take 80 hours to read all the foundation novels and spinoff novels and subsequent novels and uh, novels written in the foundation universe. But my point is the foundation is pure historical fiction disguised, well, not even really a space opera. There's no space opera action in it at all. Yeah. Um, but, but, but between uh, placing, uh, between the galactic empire business, which is pretty much what happened to the Roman empire in fantastic fiction for decades, between that and, um, oh, let's say, uh, well, it, Rome se seems to be a, a, a kind of commonplace, but I'm thinking of Less Darkness Fall. I'm thinking of um, things like R.A. Lafferty's Past Master. Uh, there's, there was a lot of interest in history and science fiction mm -hmm. uh, in the, from the 40s, when the foundation things began, through the 80s and 90s, uh, John Ford. Well, John Ford actually is more of a fan. But my point is, how does science fiction, or how should science fiction, treat history differently from the way fantasy does? You don't have as much freedom as you do. And is historical, is fantasy better suited to representing historical cultures than science fiction is? I don't think so, but I don't know the answer to it. I think fantasy might look like it's better suited to dealing with historical matters. And I don't concede that it actually necessarily is, but it looks like it does mm. because the wallpaper is similar, right? By which yeah. I mean, you know, when, when you write, when Levy writes the, the, the hood, right? Yeah. You can set it in Nottingham that looks like Nottingham. When uh, Shelley Parker Chan writes about parts of China, she's writing certain parts of real China and she just changes the, the look and feel of it a little bit. When Asimov writes, takes the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, he's not casting it in, in you know, Mediterranean Europe. He's casting it in space. It looks different, though the essence is the same. I think some of it comes down to the type of stories you're trying to tell. Space mm -hmm. opera, and I've been trying to think more about space opera or space fiction late in the last few days, really is sea adventure fiction yeah. in some variation or other. So, so maritime history becomes relevant and is is in fact, if you like, in, to this day, the core of what you see over at Bain and wherever else. David Weber, Elizabeth Moon, uh, all uh, basically maritime history, that kind right. of thing, right? And that will always be around. Um, I think in short, at short fiction, you see his, history and science fiction connecting as satire, history and science fiction connecting as commentary. Um, I don't see a lot... Well, no. And in fact, we say, do we see science fiction doing this? We saw last year, even though I don't know hmm. that you or I necessarily both discussed it, um, Kate Elliott, a, a bitterly underrated, in my mind, yes. writer, who just had a story uh, in the Best American Stories this, this year. Uh, she had a book out last year, which was a recasting of The Life of Alexander the Great as space opera. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, exactly what you're talking about happening. And it takes it up i mean because the like i say i think because the set dressing looks super looks so different we sometimes lose track and i think the, the thing that has lost seems to have disappeared a bit though and maybe it's because my attention is elsewhere is um alternate histories and that's the kind of thing like with less darkness fall you're talking about right that yeah, less darkness fallen away mm -hmm. um or time travel so, in general i mean uh, behold the man and that sort of thing as well uh so but, but to some extent I mean, with with Moorcock, I think he was using uh, he was using a, a, a time travel device to tweak religious history into to, to use it satirically, as you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, uh, so or drifted into into media. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot of the alternate history time travel stuff seems to drift into television and film a lot more than it does into literature right now. 
I think it's happened. I mean, I think it was, it's, it's one of, one of my pet theories, which isn't working as well as it used to, that it, 40 or 50 years ago, it was much more common in fiction that it was unknown in media. Now it's common in media and, and lesser known in fiction. My general principle is that media, by which I mean corporate media, by which I mean franchises, TV, so forth and so on, generally runs three to five decades behind fiction. And the trends in fiction show up three to five decades later in film. Um, and I, th I think one of the reasons we began to see new space opera on television was that we were about 20 or 30 years out from new space opera as a form uh, in, in literature. Do you think that science fiction, as opposed to fantasy, is perhaps going through a minor crisis of confidence at the moment? What would be the reason for that? Science and the real world. You know, uh, it's not easy to have faith in the idea or, or engage with the idea of going into space and doing things. Uh, nowhere near as easy as it was 50 years ago, where you didn't have inconvenient data to get in the way. Well, um, I think that's true. Yeah. And then you also have the kind of problems that you want to resolve, uh, which are human physical problems, they tend to see, sit pretty well with a lot of fantasy, I think, right now. Um, that seems to be, uh, you know, because what I feel mm. like is that as science fiction and fantasy talk about character and about biology and about whatever else, it can push towards, and I can, even as I'm saying this, I can think of exceptions, but it can push towards fantasy. I mean, the, the immediate counter-argument that actually occurs to me are the works of Kelly Robson, mm -hmm. who does uh, deal with all of these issues in a science fictional way. And it's interesting as well, now that I think about that. You know who's, who her work reminds me of that I didn't think it would? Kelly Robson? Yeah, yeah. John Varley. It's interesting. Uh, somebody was tweeting about John Varley just earlier today that he was uh, listed as certainly one of the half-dozen uh, leading science fiction writers in the 80s and 90s. And is he being, and, and, and there are classics certainly that are out there. I don't know if he's being read these days. I, I, I don't think he is much. I think that his uh, apex of influence kind of passed uh, and we're looking for the works that will keep him in people's attention. But that the, 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 we've talked about this before here as well. The, the, the true nature of influence isn't that the people who are writing today read so-and-so. It's mm -hmm. that they read so-and-so who read so-and-so, and they read so-and-so who read so-and-so. So it's like you get trickle-down. So a Kelly Robson may or may not ever have read um, read Varley, may never have read Heinlein, but she's read someone who did, and that influenced her, that kind of thing. I suspect Kelly, although I don't know this, has read Varley. I think if you look at the kind of – I mean, there are issues around Varley's fiction that make it less comfortable, some of it, today than it used to be. I think we look mm -hmm. at it differently than we once did. Well, there's some – yeah. Stories like The Pusher and whatever else look a little bit different now, and some look more archaic, like Press Enter. But that kind of near-future science fiction, engaging with gender, engaging with body, all this sort of stuff, which he was a pioneer of over that time. He was that first post-Heinlein, next kind of mature kind of writer who came along. Uh, and I think and, and, and just as a parenthesis to that, for a period of time there, it looked like he was going to... Uh, mm. Follow the Philip K. Dick line. I mean, he was there was there was a film based on Millennium, not a very good one. There was a not as bad adaptation of I think Overdrawn at the Memory Bank on on a TV series. So he was actually getting into media. He was becoming a widely known figure uh, yeah. before this happened. Uh, but finish your thought. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. The rest of my thought is I mean, Jonathan pointing out that I do think there's a connection. I guess I think that science fiction. When it, and, okay, science fiction obviously is, a, is, is an entire ecosphere and there's stuff that's just 
the standard stuff we've been reading for years and people enjoy it and it keeps going, adventure fiction or whatever else. But that bit that we view as being the cutting edge for want of a better way of looking at it, which is reductive, but still, uh, that is looking for what to talk about right now. It's talking about things that aren't much about science, but are much about people, which is not bad. Yeah. But I think it's just, it's just trying to find what its thing should be because when you're in a time when the overwhelming conversation of the age is about climate change, people are looking about how to set things off against that. You can't just have that as your story all the time. That's exactly what my next point was going to be, that one of the things I think is happening with science fiction uh, is a narrowing of possibilities to some extent. In other words, you have, you're right, climate change almost has to be part of anything set in the near to mid-range future. The idea, uh, a lot of ideas that are kind of classic science fiction ideas from galactic empires to generation starships, even to moon colonies, seem less and less practical. They seem less and less predictive. And more and more of these things begin to draw their strength, not from the traditional ideas of extrapolation, but from the fact that you can use those settings to focus on issues that science fiction historically has ignored, like gender issues, like uh, race issues, like ageism issues, even in that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. So you can, in other words, you can set a science fiction story uh, aboard a generation starship, and what you've give, given yourself yeah, is yeah. a microcosm. You might as well set it on a remote island somewhere, because the idea that that generation starship is ever going to take off isn't part of the... Uh, appeal anymore the appeal is what you can do with characters within a setting like that. yeah and it makes me wonder if books like kate elliott's unconquerable sun mm -hmm. actually although they are undeniably space operas it is a science fiction book in space with spacey mm -hmm. things if it actually has more in common with a historical fantasy like she who became the sun or like under heaven uh than it does with the classic space operas of old even though the setting is similar you know, because the driver is, is different. Well, that's kind of what I'm wondering. And that's what I started asking myself uh, partway through um, uh, a memory called Empire, is that this is a really good explanation of what, for lack of a better term, is Byzantine politics. It doesn't need to be um, set on, in, in the middle of a galactic empire. I mean, it's, it's set on a planet which is essentially like Asimov's Trantor. It's an all-city planet. The word for world is city. Um, sort of thing. Um, is that ever going to happen? Will we? Does it happen? I mean, we, we, it, that's not the point. The point is, it's a way of telling a story that could mm. otherwise have been told as historical fiction, could have been told as fantasy fiction. Uh, is science fiction more than dressing for a story like that? It's not, not a bad really. story. It's a, it's a terrific novel. I'm much more impressed by it than I thought it was going to be. Oh, Emperor, Memory Called Empire. I oh. love that book. It's, it's a mean, terrific novel. And it deserved it. Yeah, it absolutely did. And it's a really and you intelligent even got to. You but have I'm not, even got to my favorite uh, book of 2021. I'm, I'm not picking on that at all. I mean, if, if, if you go back and look at uh, Le Guin's Hainish stories, the Hainish universe is never going to come about. We're never going to. No, no. It, it just wow. isn't, but look at what she did with it. So, well, but that, that's what that's for. I mean, that story, right? I mean, very few, if any, science fiction writers want or expect or would imagine that their worlds would come true. They're not about worlds that come true. They're about talking about uh, working through stories that we need to think about or can think about that are cast this way to make them interesting and entertaining, right? So the core of the story for A Memory Called Empire and for Desolation Called Peace, right, 
that's a story that probably could be told against a totally different setting, a historical fantasy setting. Yeah, exactly. Setting, it's the story. However, what makes it engaging as well, right, is that you have that. And what's interesting, and I would cast, suggest, ask you to think about this while you're reading the book, who are the core influences on the book you're reading as writers? That's an interesting question because I've, I've, noticed this, um, I've noticed this for the last 10 years, but especially since she died. The most inescapable, I would have said 20 years ago, the inescapable influence in science fiction would have been Heinlein, probably. Even if it's second or third generation Heinlein readers who have not read Heinlein, but have read people who read Heinlein. Now it's Le Guin. I, I, I don't see how you can escape Le Guin. And I think one of the things well, that writers have- What about for Declaration Called Peace? I think, there's Le Guin, I think there's Le Guin behind that as well. No. No. Uh, there's, there's bits the, of the- The, the root of that, that book is C.J. Cherry- and lots of Master Bouchard. Okay, that that would make sense as well. Uh, uh, and the the same, interestingly, because they've both said so hmm. uh, for Anne Leckie with her space operas. Yeah, that's the general. I mean, the generational cascade, if you will, is, is that way rather than. I mean, Le Guin may maybe as well, but as primary influence on the text. I mean, you can't if if, if you've read much Cherry at all. You can't read Desolation and not see a CJ Cherry. Not see, yeah, I can. No, I understand that now that you mention it. Um, um, and you know the same. I mean, the same is, in some ways is true of um, of the sequel, which, as I say, I like even more. I am very eager for whatever arcade you don't And I speak as someone who, like, when when Desolation first came out, uh, or, or sorry, Memory first came out, I was like, oh, that's an odd looking cover, and I'm not engaged by the title particularly. Mm. And then it won the Hugo, and I was like, uh huh, things win the Hugo. That's nice. And someone persuaded me, and I like I just devoured that book. I'm going to be fascinated to see what you think about it come the end, and whether you're going to go on and read the sequel. I probably will because it's 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 fascinating. It, it's, it, the question partly arose because of the fact you're dealing with science fiction written by an actual historian, which mm -hmm. uh, to some extent is uh, a corrective in one sense. Uh, it has nothing to do with science, the science part of science fiction. It has a lot to do with the way science fiction treats history. In other words, uh, my sense is that Martine uh, knows what she's talking about in terms of how politics works and how power relationships work between empires and small settlements in the case of uh, that particular novel. Um, and she's not drawing on pop history. And this is, this no. is where I think the shift has been. Uh, and it's a, it's a healthy shift. It's a healthy shift which has happened both in fantasy and in science fiction. And that is as appealing as Asimov's foundation stories were, they were based, as Asimov frequently and cheerfully acknowledged, on Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, on an archaic, outdated, inaccurate, and uh, but very popular and very readable history of, of the Roman Empire. In other words, it was the pop history of the Roman Empire turned into pop science fiction. Uh, when people later started looking at what the Roman Empire actually was like, um, you started getting less less brilliant protagonists, uh, less, uh, uh, I, I don't exactly know what I'm getting at, but my point is that when historians write science fiction now, or when science fiction writers, let me not use historians because Professor Weller, I think her name is, is that correct? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, she obviously knows what she's talking about. His historian who chose to write science fiction, and there, there are people like that. My sense is that science fiction has been forced to take history much more seriously because of the way history itself has been rewritten over the last 40 or 50. You can't accept the pop version of American history. You can't really write a Johnny Appleseed story uh, without 
looking at what was wrong with the whole myth of Johnny Appleseed, which, by the way, is oh, no. the entire plot of Matt Bell's Appleseed. Um, yeah. That, you know, that, that to some extent, American mythology is built on raping the environment. Um, well, to some degree, the, the, the modern industrial world is in fairness to uh, North America. Well, that's true. Yeah, we, 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 you know, I'm happy to point fingers, but honestly, you know, there's very few people who can duck that particular one. Well, that um, may be true. But you, know, hey, you, you in Australia don't have to deal with Johnny Appleseed, which is one of those myths that makes me absolutely nuts. Uh, and, and he completely deconstructs that in, in his novel, um, which is interesting because that novel partly is historical fantasy and partly is near future science fiction and partly is far future science fiction with robots wondering whatever happened to these crazy people who used to run the planet. Um, which is another kind of common. Th so the, the the point I'm making is that uh, just as science fiction has finally begun to address what it didn't address for its first hundred years, uh, and a lot of it has to do with gender and social issues and social inequalities and racism and, and, and uh, all, all sorts of issues that were always beneath it. Beneath the surface, it's it's finally started to realize it has to address history in the same way. You know, medieval history is not... Uh, what we hoped it was back when we were reading T.H. White's The Once and Future King. Um, even yeah. though that's still a delightful book, it's just you can't, you can't write Arthur that way anymore, which brings us in a way back to Lobby Titter, because I'm sure that his frustration with the pop versions of Arthur, by which I would include the Disney movie The Sword in the Stone, which in fact was based on one of T.H. White's Once and Future King volumes, that it, maybe he was just as frustrated as I am and thinking, this is all just complete crap. It's it's made up. It was I made up as a I would imagine. I yeah. would imagine that Levine's frustration was much greater. In fact, as someone who comes from a comparative, a, a comparatively marginal background, yeah. and someone who has a lot of experience with people uh, and points of view outside of the main story that's told, uh, there's, there's obviously a lot of reasonable frustration disappointment, irritation, anger with that exclusion of point of view. And so getting that changed, which to some degree is kind of happening now, is, is critical to what he's doing. Yeah, I, I think so. The anti matter of written stuff. Oh, well, I mean, it's, to some extent, it's, it's, it's very deliberate on his part. It's very conscious mm -hmm. on his part that he's, he's going to revise things. There, there are things that seem to me to be irreducible parts of history that yeah. even, uh, actually, that the, the Tidar uses as an anchor uh, of kind of reality. I mean, the, I, I think his, uh, maybe his strongest novel is called A Man Lies, Dream Man Lies Dreaming, which looks like an absurdist comedy. Hitler as a failed bumbling private eye in late 1930s London because he didn't win the election back in 1933. And yet the whole thing is framed uh, in terms of a Yiddish pulp writer uh, in Auschwitz imagining this. And the whole idea of Auschwitz is not, he, he, he's not messing with that. But he's also pointing out something else which nobody would have thought of, which was that, yeah, pulp writers were victims as well. In other words, the, the, the role of the writer in his work uh, is always sort of paramount. Osama is a novel about a pulp novelist who writes novels about a character named Osama bin Laden. Um, so so he's, there, there are things that he's very serious about, and one of them is the act of writing and the role of the writer, and the other things are issues like the Holocaust, which you really, uh, I don't think you can mess with things like that. Um, no. Yes, there are some, some, some things in history, and uh, you, you can't, and some you need to, to represent, I guess. Uh, if, when we expand our discussions, as we occasionally do, to 
media. You, know, you have to look mm. at things like, you know, as we've talked about before here, the 2019 HBO Watchmen adaptation. Yes, I was going to come. Which we think of pretty much alike. Because here, here's my point about that. Uh, the Watchmen thing was very inventive. And yet, uh, for many American viewers, I don't know if it was true around the world, for many American viewers, it was the first time that encountered the Tulsa 1919 massacre. Mm. First time we'd heard about that. And it was presented in dead serious terms in that series, as it was later in, um, was it Lovecraft Country? That uh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So, so, so here, here's a historical event which got buried. There, there are historical accounts of it. Uh, mm. There are there's historical fiction about it, I believe, but it wasn't until fantasy and science fiction sort of forced our attention on something, which in both of those TV series uh, were presented as straight historical nightmares. There was there, the the, mm. the only role of the science fiction or fantasy figures in them were as observers. So to yeah, some it's, extent, it's that, yeah. Sorry. That, that's what I'm calling irreducible history. That really happened, and science fiction. And fantasy are best at their best when they simply present it as realistically as they could. Well, okay, I would be wary of a statement that they said that, that said science fiction and fantasy were best when they talked about such things. I would agree with you that they're best when they talk about them in the plain, plainest way possible at times. Okay, I'm sure, some of them are an exception, but you know. And I also, I'm a little bit wary of being too self-congratulatory. I'm not saying you are. Uh, about science fiction and this particular issue, it just happens. Or this particular event, it just happens that uh, a show created by a person of color brought this event on HBO on that sort of platform at a time when those kind of series, by which I mean event series in the genre, yeah. get a lot of attention, managed to bring attention back to this. I mean, I'd heard of it beforehand, but to be honest, more as a piece of strange trivia than a terrible event. Yeah, you know, a strange piece of trivia as you know, did you did you know there was a situation where once upon a time, you know, American citizens bombed each other from the from the air you know from airplanes, and no one was charged for it. And you're going like, no, that couldn't possibly happen. And there it is. And it always it, it always it brings back that ongoing thing that's in fiction and outside of it that you know history is written by the people who get who who get to get to write it uh, or told by the people who get to write it and. Yeah, the other point about that, of course, which has a lot to do with the variety of voices we're hearing in science fiction, by yeah. which I, I, don't, I don't simply mean that we're uh, hearing LGBTQ voices, minority voices, we're hearing international voices, we're hearing Korean voices, we're hearing South Asian voices. And every time we hear a voice like that, it brings our attention to another aspect of... Um, of history, which I hadn't thought about. I didn't even realize this, speaking of odd media things, but by sheer accident the other night, I watched a, uh, a short movie uh, called A Special Episode of the Kingdom. And the kingdom was this strange Korean historical zombie fantasy, which was terrific. I thought it was terrific. It had the best costumes of anything I've seen on television in the last 10 years, and I want one of those medieval Korean hats. Um, but... <laughs> There was also, it's, it's also set in a very specific historical, historical period when Korea was uh, concerned with uh, being basically overrun by Japan. Uh, in other words, there's a historical source, which this film makes clear, behind the whole zombie thing. In fact, this film, which I would recommend because if you've seen the series, the 2B series of the kingdom, this is an origin story for those things. And it has to do with real Korean Japanese politics. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that this is a good example of what reading science fiction from 
other points of view than your own can do for you. When I read a couple of Korean anthologies of science fiction, uh, a couple of Korean collections of science fiction stories, I didn't know anything about Korean history. I mean, as far as, you know, as, far as growing up in the United States is concerned, Korean history sort of began with the Korean War in 1952, and they were just kind of there before. But Let's be honest, whole, basically MASH, right? Well, okay, MASH, yeah. But even MASH, MASH everybody MASH, watching MASH. The entire, history of Korea, the, the, great, the entire history of Korea for a lot of North America and, in fact, uh, probably Australia and everything else comes down to MASH, hmm. Hyundai cars, boy bands, and crazy dictators. Probably true. Um, Which, of course, is ridiculous and reductio ad absurdum. And blah, 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 blah. But still, that's kind of what it comes down to a little bit. But the, 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 there's, there's a wonderful history. There's, there's a whole set of sources of history available to science fiction and mm. fantasy. Now, it's always been available to science fiction and fantasy writers in Korea or, or, or India or Pakistan or whatever. Now we can read them, and now we can see that you know 90% of world history, which has been ignored by science fiction up till now, is now available yep. for readers. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and I'm trying to think of other examples of this sort of thing. A oh, good example, uh, Vietnam. Most of us think of, v again, most of us in the United States think of Vietnamese history as, I, I, I was smart enough to know that Vietnam was once called Indochina, and there were novels by Graham Greene. It was an issue. Going back to the 50s, not until I started reading uh, some of Aliette de Baudard did I realize there's a long interesting, fascinating Vietnamese history, which has sure. to do with its relationship with China, which has to do uh, and it's now available. I mean, it's like science fiction has opened up a whole historical set of perspectives that it didn't have before. Because most of the history, the U.S. history of Vietnam had to do with the U.S. experience of a war that happened to be located there rather than anything to do with Vietnam itself. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and so the growth to change of perspective is incredibly valuable. Uh, and maybe does tend to lean more towards fantasy than science fiction, even though the Vietnam, the, the uh, Elliot de Bodard example, some of the other fiction you and I have talked about over the last year or two from from Zen Cho, from a whole bunch of other people, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of leans into to a healthy change, particularly particularly for fantasy. You know, it's an interesting time, Gary, very interesting. Well, my point, and we've made this point, uh, both of us on the podcast before, is that um, science fiction runs out of, purely science fictional ideas, because as I mentioned earlier, the the options get narrowed. Maybe we're not worried about nuclear war anymore, although somebody somebody were to write a really inventive nuclear war story, it's not as though we're out of the woods. But you know, global warming is there. Probably galactic empires aren't going to happen, or if they're happening, we won't ever know about it. Probably even the the novels I loved from a few years ago, the Ian MacDonald Moon Colony novels and the John Kessel Moon Colony novel, I don't really think that moon colonies are going to happen, happen like that. So yeah, I, I like to think that the 2312 or the Expanse kind of universe might have happened. But the more I think about it, the less I think that's true. The more you get into galactic empires, the more science fiction is essentially doing what fantasy does using science fiction language. But also, I mean, when you think about practically, I mean, one of the things, there was, there's this kind of, there was always a what looked like optimistic but was actually toxic idea in science fiction that if we used up the planet we were on, we'd just go somewhere else, right? Classic maritime kind of uh, history analogy. You know, you're on an island, you wreck the island, you can just top right. a boat south and you live there happily. Except you can't sail there and you can't live there. And that, that's kind of pretty much a reasonable kind of way of looking at it now. I can see a future where we exploit the solar system by probe. 
you know, like like yeah. like remotely, uh, extracting resources, this sort of thing. I can't see a future, certainly in the next two hundred years, in any useful way, uh, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but hey, um, where we actually go places and do things. And I don't think there's anything there to go and do if you go. Well, you know? and, and, and one way around that is to uh, write stories from the points of view of AIs and robots who actually do go there. And surely or, the thing that's tied in is the most science fictional thing of the of the last year are the two, now the two out of three billionaires who've gone to space on their own dime, mm-hmm. you know, which is purely cla- I mean, it's classic Heinlein science fiction. And at best it has some passing value in terms of developing reusable platforms and this kind of stuff, but it's largely kind of vanity stuff. It, 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 it largely is. And, and, and then when it, I, it's like, sorry. Oh, it was, what, what, what that reminded me of, uh, you're right. Heinlein, well, not in the Heinlein juveniles when you build the rocket ship in your backyard, but, but the going back to destination moon, one of my favorite scenes in a science fiction movie, the only movie that Heinlein was closely involved with was destination moon in yeah. the middle of that. There is a, I think it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny is trying to persuade all the industrialists in the room that they have to pay for space exploration and, and so forth and so forth. In other words, the assumption is that the way to get into outer space was to persuade billionaire industri- industrialists to do it. Um, yes, or, or, or it, it, it's that kind of, it's also that sort of very first half of the 20th century view of America of can do, do it yourself. You know, yeah. go off, get your own resources, make your own thing, build your own thing, do your own thing. Don't depend on government and the rest of the society to do it, right? Very the man who sold the moon. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it works in the real world or it works now. And it, in fact, what it felt like to me as a lifelong science fiction reader was one dream of science fiction dying before my very eyes. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what it feels like. It looked um, like a sterile thing. There was a, uh, an, a there's a, there's a strange history of science fiction. There are lots of really strange histories of science fiction, but the most fun ones are by the writers themselves. And Donald A. Walheim wrote a history of science fiction called The Universe Makers, uh, which was important because Walheim's perspective was a really important perspective. I mean, he was a fan. Yeah. He was one of those people at the first Worldcon. He started. He aided the ace books, started Daw books, and so forth and so on. And he described what he called a consensus cosmology, although it wasn't really a cosmology. But he described this based on what he grew up reading and what he was editing and what he was publishing at the time, which was, yes, there will be a space station and there will be people on the space station. And then the space station will lead to a moon colony and the moon colony will lead to a Mars colony and the Mars colony will lead to mining the outer planets because we knew there was stuff out there. And eventually the big leap is interstellar transportation, which even he couldn't quite figure out how it would happen. But that, in a sense, uh, is exactly what you're describing. And that one great leap, uh, the interstellar part of it, was the part that he couldn't explain because nobody has ever been able to figure out how to get from here to there in a realistic science fiction. But that whole cosmogony thing looks like a description of plot outlines for all the stories that Astounding published between 1937 and 1970. Um, And it doesn't work anymore. The stories can still work. Because you can still believe in a world. You, it's one of the reasons I think we started getting alternate space program stories, like Steve Baxter did uh, some some stories and novels about what if we had, what if the Brits had gotten to the moon and so forth and so on. Um, because people are realizing that that history didn't work out, and yeah. therefore, and, look, and, and maybe this is where some of the streams in the conversation cross. Because maybe 
in a sense, the future of some forms of like space opera is as a form of uh, historical fantasy. That's yeah, precisely. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. And the thing is, no, you can use you can, but you can you can you can introduce interesting science fictional concepts into that. Yeah, and if you go and look, I mean, the, the other yeah, sorry, the, the idea of um, in the case of um, uh, a, a memory called Empire, the idea that you can actually implant. Of uh, memories of somebody else uh, who had your job before you did, which is actually not that much different from, I think, Richard Morgan and Altered Carbon, where you just take on a new... In other words, a lot of science fiction ideas that might be credible, you can place them in a space opera environment, and the whole environment doesn't have to be credible, but the science fictional ideas are still intriguing. Very true. Very true. Very true. So I, that... I mean, I will say that, I mean, I don't think that, I mean, it's interesting to see writers invest so much in characters and ideas that are important set against backdrops they would never believe could happen. True, but I, I guess the question is... Which is normal, I, I guess, for fiction and fantastic fiction. Well, I, it's, it's hard to think. I, I think. I think it's changed the way people have to read science fiction. And I'm not, even I am not quite old enough to have read the Foundation stories, even when they came out in book form in the late 40s and early 50s. But I remember reading, okay, I remember... From the very get-go, when I was reading Bradbury, I was thinking, no, this is, this is not even ever going to, this is nothing like anything that anybody oh, yeah. ever thought Martian exploration. But I thought the foundation, that's really cool. I didn't think about the fact that how would you do about, how would, how would you organize a galactic empire? How would you organize uh, a foundation to preserve knowledge and so forth and so on? And then I thought, well, it worked when you know when the monasteries did it in the early Middle Ages, sure. I suppose, which is what he's basing it on. But, but I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, and this is the thing about that era of science fiction or science fiction generally is that stuff, without wanting to get too gendered about it, was a particular kind of adventure fiction. It was like boys' adventure fiction. It wasn't about um, is this actually really, really, really going to happen. No one was looking for Black Destroyer by A. Van Vogt to come come true. It just had to be really cool and fun. Which it was, and then you know, it, yeah. it, it, the movie Alien worked as well as Black Destroyer did for its time. Actually, it was Discord in Scarlet, I guess, that was the origin yeah. of the film Alien. But when I was a kid, I really thought I could go to the moon. When it, when you joined the Book of the Month Club in the fifties, not the Book of the Month, the Science Fiction Book Club, one of the ads on the back of the magazines was that if you join the Science Fiction Book Club, we will send you, we will reserve a spot for you on the first commercial moon flight. And I joined, and I got my little ticket that basically said, this person's name will be submitted to the first <laughs> company offering commercial moon flights, not realizing that it was going to be Elon Musk and it was going to cost $250 million. But I really thought I had a chance. I really thought when I was 10 or 12 years old that at least getting into outer space, at least vacationing on a space station, because we all had those pictures in our minds of the rotating wheels space station. Uh, I figured at least I could make it to something like the space station that we saw in, let's say, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, well, I don't think anybody in the, science fiction today believes any of that. Oh, no. I mean, I was going to say, if you were to go and dig up and you'd have to do some digging, I have a copy of the 1972 Mount Lawley Primary School annual you know, <laughs> magazine they'd put out. It asked the year two, so we're seven years old maybe, to give a paragraph, like a sentence, on what you're going to do when you grow up. I think I've said uh -huh. this before. I was sure I was going to grow up to be a geologist and live on Mars. Right, because Absolutely it's sure. I mean, well, come on, I was born in 1964. Don't really mm -hmm. remember much between 64 and 68. By the time I'm here in Western Australia, I've seen 
uh, Armstrong land on the moon. We've, we've, we're taking time out every like, it seems like between 1969 and 1975, every now and again, television gets wheeled into the into a classroom. Yeah, exactly. And you get to watch another Apollo thing or whatever it is, right? And you're going, well, we're on our way, you know? No one, even, even this is the whole thing about your, the aborted moon pro, or lunar programs you're talking about with uh, Steve Baxter and stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. at that point, you kept feeling like, this is the path. We, we're seeing it. We, and if you read science fiction, you're told, in fact, these are the very first stepping stones on the path to the thing that you've been talking about all along, right? Mm-hmm. We stopped because of the real world. Um, but at that point, yeah, totally. And I don't. you're right. I think if you were to go and find a 10-year-old now or an 8-year-old now, I have no idea what they're dreaming of for the future. Maybe they're a little bit more cautious or I don't know. But they're not dreaming about going. I don't know any. Unfortunately, I don't know any 10 or 12-year-olds anymore. Uh, but the ones I did, my grandkids, who are now in their 20s, were, they, were, they, they, they weren't thinking about going to outer space. They were thinking about making a lot of money, maybe. Uh, and they were thinking about becoming rock stars. But the science fiction dream, and, and none of them are geeks like I was. So that's part of it. Um, my point is that science fiction, the way it worked in terms of dreaming about your own personal future, doesn't work that way anymore. Uh, because your own personal future doesn't look that good, and science fiction isn't encouraging very much. Yes, and in fact, the thing that science fiction is casting around for is a palatable st- story of the future that it can tell that actually manages to coincide with some version of the facts. Well, exactly, and and one of the things that uh, historians uh, this is this was a big issue among. Uh, American historians, uh, yeah. uh, 20 or 30, maybe years ago, there's a phrase, I don't know who coined it, called the search for a usable past. In other words, trying yep. to write the history of America in a way that, essentially, we did rewrite the history of the United States in a way that valorized white males, which is, mm. but, but that turned out to be a less useful past as, as it began to fall apart. What I think science fiction is looking for now is a usable future. Uh, or even a livable future. A, a survivable future, I think. Survivable is, 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 and and, yeah. and I, I, I read a thing where it's like, you, you begin the path to finding that when you stop looking for a stable state and realize that the next 100 years are going to have no stable state. This mm-hmm. is what the last 24 months tell us, right? There are no stable states coming. That that long sort of period, sort of uh, climatologically speaking, that, that humanity's lived through is, is, is done. Now everything is going to be you know, change and it's how you adapt to change and where and how it impacts you uh, and managing that and whatever else. And that's a whole different way of thinking about society and life. And I think one of the things that uh, uh, we will see this begin to change as it works its way into media, like we mentioned, finally, things like cyberspace worked their way into popular movies. And global warming is still not quite there. It's not, it's not, part, of, it's not part of the baseline future in media that it is in fiction. But I saw a preview when I went to see this film today, The Green Knight, which I thought was terrific. Mm. There was a preview for a film called Reminiscence. Uh, and it's clearly a global warming film. The, war, the, yeah. the waters have risen. And uh, it's, it's, I don't know what the plot is. It's, it's probably some kind of espionage film. But it was, it was full of shots of flooded cities, of uh, you know, uh, windmills, uh, wind, wind, wind turbines barely above the surface of the water. Uh, metropolis is you know flooded and so forth so and, and it didn't look like that was the major part of the plot it looked like that was the setting yeah and yeah. i think that's the, that's the next phase the next phase is when global warming becomes part of the kind of standard background of 
TV and, 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 and movies rather than literature where it pretty much already is there. Yeah. So I've been reading. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about talk to Arcady Martin about a memory called Empire and a desolation uh-huh. called Peace, which is good. The other big thing this week for me as a individual living, surviving human right now is I went out to a vaccination center, Gary, and I got my second Pfizer vac- vaccination. So I am now fully vaccinated for, uh, as much as I can be at this point against COVID-19. Joining the tiny percentage of Australians who ha- who are vac- vaccinated. Interesting that you're doing that at the very time that I'm beginning to wonder if I need to get a booster vaccine because my second vaccine was let me see April May more than four months ago uh, and the the six months out on the two vaccines is kind of an unknown factor at this. Point. Well, I, I didn't think that was. A, uh, I mean, I've yeah, I've heard they're going to they may recommend a six month booster on the Pfizer, well, but I haven't heard that thing. They I would say. I mean, the Australian federal government, who have woefully mishandled the pandemic, as opposed to the state government, have, have finally come out and said their their target for reopening the, our international borders and allowing us to travel freely is that 80% of the population must be vaccinated. Well, and I am not optimistic we're ever going to see that. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's really... A, do you have the same uh, vaccine refusal there that we have here in the States? There are cultural differences, but there is a strong element of it. Yes, you know, it's my right not to have it. It's the government trying to control me. You want 5G in my head or whatever thing it might be. And there's also people who, either for very good medical reasons or reluctant, people who cannot see that, yes, these, these drugs are, comparatively speaking, in development, and so they're cautious. But, you know, there's this driving need. I mean, we've got where not very long ago things looked okay. We've got, you know, like two-thirds of the country – yeah, it's a lockdown. New South Wales, which is a large state with many millions of people in it, you know, has been locked down for seven weeks or nine weeks or something, and could be locked down as late as Christmas, they think. Mm. So, you know, this is this is both serious, social, and economic, and whatever else stuff. And you do begin to wonder, and this is sort of me getting hectoring and lecturing, Gary, Gary lecturing Gary. So maybe I shouldn't hear on the podcast because I'm, I don't know that everybody who listens is on the same has the same view, but. Um, it feels like to me it's your social obligation to do this to the humans around you. That's the argument I would make too. And if you believe in reason at all, then uh, vaccination seems inevitable. But the other thing that occurs to me, when we talk about things like lockdowns and we talk about things like um, getting your second vaccine and, uh, and, and, and getting uh, herd immunity and so forth and so on, we're talking about something which is extremely science fictional and not only which science fiction didn't really talk about, but mm. if science fiction did talk about it, it didn't talk about what happens the way it's happened. Right. In other words, science no. fiction, there are lots of science fictional plagues. We can go back to Stephen King's The Stand. Sure. We can go back to any number of things. And the problem, the problem from a science fictional point of view is that as traumatic as the last two years have been, they haven't been traumatic enough. There are lockdowns, yes, but you haven't been nailed inside your house and shot if you ventured out onto the street. You know, are you saying people, that the average man in the street is only going to respond to a zombie uh, apocalypse if, to get a shot? That's kind of what I'm getting at. It's it, it feels doesn't look horrible enough for people. I think that's a little bit extreme, but I do think it feels a little bit like that. It does feel as though they're going out of the way to find a solution. It appears to me, and there may be other information, that there's only one solution as a path forward, and that is get everybody vaccinated and then open up and move on. Exactly. And- but the thing is, you can't get you can't get past uh, 
a, a degree of paranoia which is spurred spurred by science fictional ideas, but not by science fiction itself, by which I mean dumbed down science fiction. I had a conversation with somebody who was utterly convinced that this was a designed virus to get the United States. It was designed by the Chinese government. Yep. They forced it upon us. And with my knowledgeable reading of past science fiction novels, including things like uh, Frank Herbert's The White Plague comes to mind, which was a designed virus to kill all the women in the world. My point that I was making to him is if you're going to design a a virus to to attack Western and destroy Western civilization, you don't design a virus that for most people causes a few symptoms and kills a few. You design a hemorrhagic Ebola-style virus that will kill 80% of the population, not 10%. And they haven't seen that. If you're going to design a targeted virus to attack uh, other people and whatever else, first of all, one, you'd probably exclude your own people from it if you can. Two, if you, you probably can. wouldn't release it at home. Right. I mean, don't. I'm, I'm not trying to talk rationally. No, I know, I know, I know. But I'm just saying, right? I'm just saying. It's, I mean, like, I, I, my, my it's, it's a bad is, world anyway. So, so that that's a big thing. Got vaccinated, getting the rest of the family vaccinated. It is. It's important. You know? uh, and uh, your, uh, you know, your kids are both old enough to get the vaccine. Yes. And I'm also, um, I upgraded my membership to the Chicago Worldcon from supporting to attending in what feels like a heady rush of optimism. Even though it's September of next year, it feels headily optimistic to imagine I could be there. I but I'll tell you, I knew I wasn't going to get there without the vaccine. Um, no, that's certainly true. And one I would not be surprised I'm... if the memberships become conditional. Um, I, well, at, by that point, I think it's entirely reasonable. Um, I mean, I'm... Uh, I'm going to New York in a couple of weeks, and I they're, they're not quite locked down there, but they're they're very concerned that I can't go to see this TV show um, yeah. without proof of vaccination, and probably by the time we get there, a mask as well. Uh, mm. and a lot of the places around here, even in Chicago, which has a fairly low percentage and hasn't had an uptick in cases, even though the surrounding area has, uh, masks are coming back. But that's my yeah. point. That's my point. The idea of having to work, this is something that science fiction writers, even a, even a Thomas M. Dish couldn't have thought of this, that there would be a culture war over wearing paper masks, that that would become the issue, the big issue of whether or not it's a violation of human rights to be asked to protect other people by wearing a mask in public. Nobody, I think, I think very few, maybe Vonnegut, maybe very few science fiction writers yeah were so cynical about human nature that they thought an innocent act like wearing a mask would become a major political and moral you debate. Know, I, saw, I, saw, I don't remember the full content of it. I saw a tweet the other day about making some other writer the dominant science fiction of our time rather than Philip K. Dick. But the truth is, Philip K. Dick and Kurt Vonnegut are the people who kind of nailed it. They, they are kind of. I mean, Dick, simply because of his free-ranging paranoia if there's any conspiracy that you can imagine it's probably happening and it's probably targeted toward you yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, and and for vonnegut his i mean a lot of the stuff like ice nine uh in, in in cat's cradle uh that's not going to happen but the reactions to it the social reactions yeah. he pretty much nailed that he pretty much nailed people's attitude uh, yeah. which goes back to yeah even though you're yeah sorry go ahead it goes back to my point that uh, science fiction at its best can nail attitudes better than they can predict the future. Yes, very much. Right. I was going to say, even though your mini ICFA, International Conference of Fantastic and the Arts, this October, probably isn't requiring vaccination to get in the door or buy a membership, I'm going to bet that it's almost impossible to get there without one because you have to fly. Yeah. 
So you're going to need to be vaccinated. I mean, and I would imagine this is the, the thing that I've been working out in terms of how some of this is going to go. No major venue or event underwriter or insurer will agree to underwriter and insure an event that doesn't require vaccination because it's too risky. We have, uh, as we speak this weekend, there is uh, a giant series of rock concerts in Grand Park in Chicago called Lollapalooza. Yeah, Lollapalooza, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. And, and I've seen on the new, not news for the last couple of nights, uh, air, you know, helicopter shots of these crowds of 10,000 people gathered in the park. So, where social distancing is six inches, if they're lucky, social distancing is, but they are required to have vaccinations, I think, or proof of a negative COVID test within 72 hours in order to get in. However, I don't know how they're enforcing that since I've never figured out how they enforce a park full of 10,000 people to do anything. I don't know. I would have thought that, yeah, at this point, I don't know. I would have thought the way you imp- you um, you prove vaccination is at the point of purchasing tickets. Mm. You know, I can tell you that when I got my vaccinations, or Mar- Mariana, my wife and I, Mariana, I went together. Mm. And we went out to this place, took about half an hour. It was no big deal and didn't hurt. But we sat down, we did a vaccine, got vac- vaccinated. They pressed a button. My phone had an email on it fr- saying, hi, we have the record of your uh, vaccination. Mm-hmm. I got a text saying we have a record of your vaccination. And I opened up my social st- security account and there was proof of vaccination, which then cool. gets attached to my passport and all that. It was done within half an hour of the actual shot. Mine so, was a little more complicated. I went to my local hospital, a great hospital, one of the best hospitals in the country, Northwestern University, and they immediately gave me – it was on my record, and, and so. but they didn't give me a CDC card, uh, which yeah. is the Center for Disease Control. I had to request that later and only got one this week because I won't be able to go see this TV show unless I have it. But yeah, See, I mean, the way I would do this, by the way, which they probably won't, I don't know, this is what I would do. I was thinking about it. I buy a lot of – uh, concert tickets are used to and event tickets from mm. major ticket retailing chains like Ticketmaster and Ticketek. Mm. So what you do is you actually put a thing in the account because I have my own account. You say, you know, you need to have provided proof of vaccination before they allow you to buy tickets just in there. Oh, and okay. that sorts it out once and for all. Done. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's a simple enough. I think so. Anyway, this is us getting a long way off where we need to be because we're all here about the science fiction. Well, we've been my, talking my, about my, my, point is, my point, though, is this, that uh, we, we've seen a lot of things about the slow apocalypse, and uh, our friend James Bradley has written a very good novel about that, two very good novels about yes. that, and there have been others. But the fact is that we are talking about, a, for the last two years, a major international catastrophe, which is... And the way it plays out, too dull for science fiction. We've just had a conversation about getting vaccination cards, and it would it, it, ten years ago it would have taken enormously taken an enormously skillful science fiction writer to write any kind of suspenseful near near future story, in which the MacGuffin was a vaccination card. Not even. Hey, you know, we will say though that's the twenty. That is the. That is the, the first world, Western world version of all of this. Because after all, my version of the pandemic and your version of the pandemic, right, is sitting at home and not being able to go out and do things we want to do. Neither of us, because we are fortunate and lucky, are dependent True. financially or physically. We're not living in either the poorer parts of our own countries where people are losing work, jobs, and homes. We're not living in parts of the world where there is 
no or inadequate healthcare. We're not stuck in a country where they're having Olympic Games and their hospital systems are collapsing because of all of the COVID cases. Right. We're not living in places where bodies are being burnt in parking lots because we've got nowhere else to, to put them. So that kind of shock is insulated from our part of the world. It's and we insulated. need to always be very aware of that. Well, I mean, one of the things that this whole situation has made me aware of when I see uh, absolutely heartbreaking comments from uh, from, from emergency room nurses and doctors and that sort of is Gibson's fav- famous quotation that the you know, future is already here. It's just unequally, yeah. unequally distributed. And the apocalypse is here, but it's unequally distributed. It doesn't hit me, but I'm thinking about these poor people who are working in uh, ICUs these days. That for, for them, and I gather the apocalypse is there, and it's a full science, full-on science fiction apocalypse. You can't dream. Yeah. You, you, you can't go home and go to sleep and have pleasant dreams. You've got to be up in six hours. I remember talking to uh, uh, actually the, an excellent science fiction writer, Todd A. Thompson, a physician in London, who mm. said basically, no, there is no vacation. There's no time off. This was a year ago during the height. Same thing with Usman Malik. Yes, exactly. Usman uh, is, is in the same situation. So there is a real uh, science fiction apocalypse going on for the people in the middle of it. And those of us on the fringes are complaining about things like getting our vaccination cards in time or getting on an airplane. I know. Seems a bit pathetic, doesn't it? It kind of does, but I think it's one of the realities that science fiction needs to recognize is that an apocalypse for some is not an apocalypse for all, and that the most frightening thing we have to look forward to is a dull apocalypse, one that doesn't anyway, really dramatically. There aren't zombies out there on the show. Um, we're out past the hour, and uh, I'm aware uh, that you know. I, we're really I, I trust most of our. I'm try, I trust that our Crude Street listeners, our our community of Crude Streeters, are probably mostly on the same page with this. But I guess we'll see. Um, uh, we'll find out. I have to say that it's, it's not. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to worry about it too much. This is one where. I think we're on the right side of history, Ari. I think we are. And I think from the point of view of looking at the future science fictionally, and I think one of the things that those of us who grew up reading science fiction have ingrained certain habits of looking at the future that other people haven't. Uh, just, uh, yeah. Another parenthetical thing, one of the exercises I used to do in class, and I may have mentioned this years ago on the podcast, but I would ask students to write down three or four events that they think will happen in the next 10 years in world history. Yeah. And there would, there would be usually some catastrophe. A meteor will strike in the middle of uh, India or something, or, or there'll be an atomic war, or there'll be massive flooding and Florida will disappear. Yeah. Their, their predictions of the future globally were catastrophic. And then a yeah. few weeks later, after they'd forgotten that exercise, I'd ask them to write down three or four events that you think will happen in your life in the next 10 to 20 years. And that list came out, oh, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have children. And then you line up the things they had said were going to happen in the world with the things that happened to them. And there was no correlation. And I pointed out to them, you know, you're having this very nice wedding on Hawaii, but you said two weeks ago that Hawaii was going to be destroyed by a volcano the year before this. How does that line up? My point is people's personal futures and their ideas of um, global futures don't line up. I think those of us who read science fiction are a little bit better at that than most people. Could be so. Anyway, enough. Next week, Arcadia Martin. All right. For now, for now, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. Yeah, it was. We kind of talked.